Welcome to the New Books Network. If you've ever visited a museum, enjoyed an opera house, studied at a university, worked at a think tank, an NGO, or gone to the hospital, or even if you've ever donated to a good cause, your life has been impacted by philanthropy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network with the Van Leer Jerusalem series on ideas. Subscribe to our series on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever you find your podcasts. I'm honored to welcome Paul Vallelie to the show today to talk about his recent book, Philanthropy, from Aristotle to Zuckerberg. Paul Vallelie is an award-winning journalist and commentator on religion, society, and politics. In 2006, he was honored with the coveted British CMG Award in recognition of his services to journalism and to the developing world. Vallely is the editor of The New Politics, Catholic Social Teaching for the 21st Century, and has advised Catholic bishops of England and Wales. Paul Vallely, welcome to the podcast. It's very good to be here. Tell us about the two foundational visions of philanthropy, Jerusalem and Athens, the Jewish view on which Christian and Muslim views are based, and the Greek and Roman views. Well, uh, philanthropy has really intertwined those two traditions for over two millennia. Um, the, the word philanthropy is Greek, uh, and it comes from philos, uh, love, anthropos, um, mankind, lover of mankind. Uh, and in the uh, the heyday of uh, 4th century uh, BCE uh, Athens, we had a situation where there was um, something called liturgia, uh, uh, which is where the word liturgy comes from. And it was um, a system which was used to persuade members of the wealthy elite to choose to finance some public cause. It might be something small like uh, funding a play or sending a team of athletes to the Olympic Games, or it could be something big like uh, building a temple or, or a warship. And uh, the prominent citizens sought to outdo one another in the extravagance of their gifts to show the superiority of their own civic virtue. And uh, so you had this this kind of philanthropy which was about put power and prestige. It was lavished according to the personal preferences of the donors, and it was essentially about the rich rather than the poor. Now, in the same historical period, uh, Judaism brought a revolution to this notion of philanthropy. Um, I don't have to tell you from the start, you know, the book of Genesis, uh, every man and woman, Adam and Eve, they're made in the image of God. But what a lot of people don't realize is that this idea of everybody being made in the image of God was absolutely revolutionary at the time in a Middle Eastern world where only kings and emperors and pharaohs were gods. And something else was new in Judaism. Uh, God was spoken of, as many other, amongst many other things, the God of the poor. That was never a phrase applied to any Greek or Roman God. And Judaism, with its vision of the stranger, the widow, the orphan, being repeatedly seeking... Um, uh, uh, singled out as deserving of charity um, comes from this this idea that um, God had been generous to humankind and so uh, in, a, in a kind of human echo of that um, men and women had a responsibility to be generous to one another so where the Greeks were talking about social hierarchy like social cement social cohesion we might call it today for the Jews it was this idea of a relationship between the individual God and the entire community, a very communitarian philanthropy uh, philosophy. And that that uh, really uh, seeped into uh, Christianity and then Islam, and it dominated um, the, the Western uh, world until uh, the 14th century. It all changed with a pandemic, interestingly enough, the Black Death. Well... Even long before we get to the Middle Ages and the Black Death, uh, you uh, explain at length in the book uh, the observation that gifts, gift giving, gift exchange has been studied by anthropologists and sociologists in many 
times and, uh, and places and cultures. And in many of them, or most of them, gifts are a sign of status as well as concern for others. So is there a confounding between gifts and charity or philanthropy? Well, one of the interesting things about philanthropy is that it has been many things in different periods. It's been a form of social control. It's been a form of uh, religious altruism and uh, and everything in between. It's been about enhancing the status of, of, of the donor. Um, it, it's... Uh, but but it's rarely one thing only. It, it, there's often mixed motives in philanthropy. So you get, as in, in Judaism, this notion, uh, you know, tzedakah is, is both charity and justice. That's a very kind of social justice end of the model. But at the other end uh, is, is, is the idea of, I suppose, the most venal end is, is reputation laundering, where somebody fairly cynically gives philanthropically in order to... Um, draw attention uh, away from the fact that they they, they they may be kind of indulging in, in ruthless uh, business practices or downright theft. So uh, th- it's it's not usually possible to, to say that any one uh, example of philanthropy is only one thing. It's, it's, got a, it's got a this mixture in it. There's also been some criti- <coughs> excuse me some criticism of uh, philanthropists who uh, are criticized as giving because it makes them feel good. But of course, now we know from research uh, uh, in the human brain uh, that in fact, giving does give us a kick, a high, that when you give, uh, the part of your brain that uh, delivers pleasure, the dopamine, the same part that's activated if you take cocaine, gets elevated that warm glow of giving is in fact biological yeah well it's a scientific proof of that but of course religions and philosophers have known that for ages you know it's more blessed to give than to receive and uh, if you talk to modern day philanthropists uh, they will um they will tell you how much they get out of it it's not it's not a one-way process uh, they're enriched by it personally and if you look at somebody um like chuck feeney who uh, was the the role model for Bill Gates? Feeney uh, in in the eighties made billions from duty free shopping, and and he gave away a lot of his money undercover. So he was called the James Bond of philanthropy because he did it without without any uh, any publicity. Uh, but eventually, when when his cover was broken by a court case, um, he was enlisted by Bill Gates and Warren Buffett to. Um, to talk to other billionaires about about what they should do, and 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 Feeney's, uh, you know, overall driving impulse was to say, look, you know, try it, you'll you you'll enjoy it. It's good. You you, you get something from it. Uh, yes, your book is is punctuated by very interesting uh, interviews with with uh, prominent philanthropists and others. Uh, uh, can you expand on the comment that one of your interviewees, uh, the late Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, said, I'll read you the quote, uh, I've always found that philanthropy is constitutive of the third space called civil society, the bit that isn't the economy and isn't the state. Philanthropy, by and large, establishes an I-thou relationship, a personal relationship. Government must, of its essence, be impartial, be impersonal. impersonal. Uh, what, what did he mean by that? He meant that um, there, is, there is in life, especially in, the modern, in modern times, we've got this um, uh, polarization. There's a kind of binary view that, that you know, the problems can be solved by, by uh, the market. That's the kind of uh, the neoconservative view. Uh, and then they've got the socialist, the extreme socialist view is that every, the state can, can deal with everything. Well, we've learned over the centuries that, that neither of those is, is, is right. Neither the state nor, nor the market is the, is the answer to everything. So where, 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 you know, where is this, this intermediate space? Well, um, Edmund Burke, the philosopher uh, of, the early, of early conservatism, talked about little platoons uh, in society, and these were the organisations, you know, everything from the, uh, the trade unions, the churches, the uh, synagogues, the um, 
everything down to the parent-teacher association at the school, tennis clubs, golf clubs, lobby groups, political party, anything that kind of stood um, to actually uh, amplify the voice of the individual or to allow the individual to interact with other people. And these little platoons are um, are what uh, make life human, human scale and where we have that I thou relationship, you can't have an I thou relationship with a with with the with the, the government or with the state, uh, but you can with other people. And that impulse uh, to interact with other people um, is 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 part of uh, the, or rather, the the philanthropic impulse is part of that. That the idea that uh, you recognise uh, you recognise yourself in the other person and you empathize with them. And that kind of empathy uh, is something that you don't get in the market and you don't get in government. Right. So something is puzzling. Philanthropy is good for the giver for the variety of reasons you've mentioned. Status makes you feel good. Uh, It's good for the recipient who needs the help. It's good for the society because in many ways, philanthropy is also an investment in the society, depending on where it goes. So why does it provoke suspicion and even hostility in every age, including our own? Well, you, you, you prefaced all of those remarks by saying it's good for, and you really need to change that to uh, it can be good for, uh, because it can also be bad for. Uh, if you look at someone like Bill Gates, I mean, he's done immense good in the world. Um, he has uh, given given more than than, than anybody else, uh, and in a, ho- a huge variety of, of ways. If you take one example, he has uh, promoted over 2.5 billion vaccinations um, against polio, and polio is a disease which used to cripple a thousand children every day, every day. And now is virtually eradicated throughout the world. It's been eradicated in in India and lots of parts of Africa. There's a few places where it's not quite gone, but by and large, and that that that's a huge achievement. And that's just one of Gates's achievements. But if you look at uh, his early experiments in education in the United States, he spent two billion dollars on um, uh, nearly three thousand high schools, which had a, a million poor and ethnic minority uh, students in them. And after a few years uh, into the project, uh, which is basically trying to make big schools into smaller schools, he decided this this wasn't working. This this whole approach was misconceived, and so the, the funding was abruptly ended. And some of the schools said, "Well, we haven't been given a chance to, to demonstrate whether this is going to work or not." Uh, and Beck Gates said, "No, no, we need a different approach." Now, to Gates, it was just a few lost billions, and um, to uh, it was a, it was a failed experiment. But to the kids who are in that educational process, those are lost years of education or prejudiced years of education, which, they, which they'd never get back. So the question is here, here's Gates doing good and bad, and, and I don't want to run Bill Gates down. He does mainly good, but this is an example of when you've got one individual with a lot of money and a lot of power, and he says, I'm going to spend it on this. How do we know whether the this is good or bad? And if it is bad, you know, what are the consequences? Well, the Bill Gates Foundation has got three trustees, Bill, Melinda, and Warren Buffett. So as long as they're on, all on side, no, there's no one really to hold him to account. So this, this question of uh, the relationship between um, democracy and philanthropy is a thorny one, because who, who are philanthropists accountable to? And that's where philanthropy can, can do bad as well as good. Um, if you want to look at another example... You can look at the Koch brothers in the States. Uh, well, David Koch died uh, last year, but Charles Koch is still um, involved in, in kinds of philanthropy which uh, are about um, promoting small views of the state, deregulating the economy, scrapping environmental protections. And uh, in the past, the, the Koch brothers have, fo- have funded a lot of uh, think tanks and academics who uh, cast doubt on the reality of climate change. Now, there's, there's some philanthropists doing something which actually goes against the thrust of modern science, goes against the thrust of what most uh, democracies believe, and, you know, who holds them to account? So the, 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 there's, a, there's a downside as well as an upside to philanthropy. 
Right. I, I guess in my mind, there's a distinction between uh, donations that go to promote a particular political point of view and donations that go to the poor. And actually, even the poor is a question. There are different types and different definitions of poverties, poverty that dominated in different historical periods. I learned this from your book. Uh, so maybe you can talk a little about those different kinds of definitions well, think, of poor. Sorry, I, I think it's worth saying at, at, at the outset. Um, you know, you, you you say it's easy to easier to look at. You know. Uh, political donations by philanthropists and say, well, maybe that's not kind of the same as proper philanthropy. But I mean, it's not as simple as that. Because if you look at in the, the United States, which is the biggest uh, philanthropic country in the world by far, um, the uh, four fifths of the money that's given by rich people doesn't go to the poor. It goes to the universities they went to, the uh, the hospitals belonging to those universities, the schools that their kids go to. Uh, opera houses, which is where they they like to spend their time. You know, the 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 rich have different, very often have different uh, social, economic, and cultural views than everybody else, and so they put their money into that. And it's popularly thought that philanthropy is a is a transfer of um, money and resources uh, from the rich to the poor. But in this case, it's 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 from the rich to to the rich. Um, so we, 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 we can see there, there's a, there's a question, a question about that. And it's not just a question. You can't just answer it by saying, oh, well, you know, uh, it, it, what a rich person does with their money is, is, is between you know, them and their conscience, uh, because, uh, there are systems of tax relief in most, uh, uh, countries in the world. So if you're, if you're, if you if you give a hundred million to an opera house and you're a, a, a taxpayer who play, pays, 40% of their income in, in tax, uh, that donation really only costs you 60 million because the 40 million that you would have paid in tax is paid by the taxpayer. So the, the philanthropist is choosing to spend his money on opera rather than, say, local community sports, uh, which the, the, the local people might prefer uh, um, a sports field to an opera house. But the philanthropist makes the choice and the local people's money, the taxpayer's money, goes with the philanthropist's choice because of the system of tax relief. So it's 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 very complicated, and there is this definitely this democratic deficit uh, with with philanthropy. And the big question is is um, uh, you know how do you address that? Right. Now, so, feeling I haven't answered the question you just asked me. <laughs> no. Well, well, I mean that's an important point because philanthropy and government decisions about tax laws are intertwined. They're they're hard to tease apart. Uh, no one would object to a rich person building an opera house. It's the tax break that she gets from that that's the problem. Is yeah, that right? It yeah. is. And so then people come up with all kinds of solutions and say, well, maybe you should, you know, the, maybe the, the government should say you get more tax relief if you give um, to uh, a soup kitchen than if you give to an opera house. Um, and there are lots of kind of proposals of uh, re reform of the tax system along those lines. But one of the other interviews in the book, uh, which follows on from that one with uh, uh, the late uh, Lord Sachs, is with uh, Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury. And he says that the trouble is when you get, um, and he's quite a, a, a left liberal figure, um, uh, uh, Rowan Williams. But it, but in, in when he looks at this question of the uh, um, the government deciding what uh, what the priorities of a philanthropist should be, he says the history of the last hundred years ought to tell us that a hyperactivist state with lots of moral convictions uh, can be pretty bad for everybody. So. The, the the question of reform is 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 prickly because some reforms will will have um, unintended bad consequences too. So it's it's a very it's a very complex area. Yeah, it certainly is. Uh, we're in the middle of a global pandemic as we speak, uh, and uh, actually, the Wall Street Journal reported that philanthropy and volunteerism have increased and changed during COVID-19. Um, you mentioned the Black Plague, which was a 14th century watershed 
uh, in the relations between rich and poor and philanthropy. Tell us about that. Well, the the uh, uh, dominant vision of philanthropy um, in the thousand years from the fourth century to the fourteenth century uh, in in the Western world was pretty much governed by uh, the, the the relationship of of the church and the state through Christendom, and. Um, Although the medieval uh, philanthropy was later disparaged at the Reformation, modern scholarship shows that it was pretty extensive, and it was done through um, the system of tithes, people paying you know a tenth of their or whatever proportion of their of their income to to the church. It was done through organisations like uh, confraternities and medieval guilds, uh, um, which which ran big charitable enterprises. Monasteries had the job of looking after uh, the uh, the destitute um, travelers. Uh, the whole idea of the hospital was derived derives from from the monastic idea of the hostel, a place to, for, for for pilgrims and travelers to stay. Um, they 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 educated uh, orphans or, or put them into apprenticeships or, or what have you. There were huge bequests in in, in wills. Uh, from um, the growing merchant classes towards the end of that period, um, uh, which were, which were in, uh, entirely phil- philanthropic in in their thrust, and then there was a lot of casual giving to beggars. Um, so there was a, there was a, an ecology of of charity and philanthropy, which which really governed uh, that period. If you look as late as the 13th century, you get somebody like uh, in France, uh, King Louis the Ninth. Uh, he was still personally. Um, uh, washing the feet of the poor, um, uh, so so it wasn't it wasn't something that was kind of um, just a theory. It was actually there in practice. And the, what happened with the Black Death was, I mean, it, it, it seems that the Black Death killed at least a third, and perhaps even as much as a half of the the population of of Europe, and and it changed the uh, uh, the whole economic structure because there were there were there was the same amount of land and, and fewer people to farm it. And um, the uh, pe- peasants who'd been tied to the land were um, uh, were set free to look for uh, better rates of pay elsewhere. And um, the, uh, the those who couldn't work um, were went out. Uh, there was like a tide of beggars swept uh, the continent of Europe, and that changed really. This, these vagrant beggars changed the attitude of the rich. To the uh, to the poor. Um, previously, there'd been this notion, which is kind of in implicit in in medieval theology, the idea of the, uh, the there was a cosmic relationship between you know God, you, and and your fellow beings, which was Christianity in, in, inherited from from Judaism. But it was it was a it, it, it although there was huge economic disparity between being rich and a peasant in 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 medieval times. There was not there was a more uh, of a spiritual equality the, the the rich had a duty to help the poor who were not uh, in huge and overwhelming and threatening numbers and the poor had a duty to pray for the rich and the idea was that that uh, that god would listen to the prayers of a poor man or woman better than a rich man um so therefore if the poor were praying for you when you were rich that was good that was good for you spiritually so there was a kind of um, mutuality a reciprocity about it, about it which that went out of the window after the black death and the the rich began to look at the poor and think these people are a threat to uh, social stability and that they might overthrow the government and uh, uh, they might maraud through the land and and steal stuff which some of them did and so there was this shift and and you and you went from the kind of jewish vision of philanthropy back to the greek one which was really about social cement or or social control and with with after the black death you got almost if you look at a country like england almost every monarch from henry the to uh, queen victoria introduced a poor law or some other measure to control the poor and that a notion that the poor needed to be reformed and controlled was central to victorian charitable moralizing and then uh, it went um, through to uh, a man like Andrew Carnegie, who was the richest man in the world in 1901 uh, in, in America. And the vision of philanthropy that he shaped is pretty much the, the vision that's still with us today. Which is philanthropy as a way to change behavior? 
which is a, a, a way uh, that the uh, the morals and the worldview of those who are rich can be uh, projected onto everybody else uh, in a way which I mean Carnegie talked about uh, create his philanthropy was 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 dedicated to creating um, ladders on which the aspiring poor could climb. Uh, that idea of social mobility, and that that's fine. Uh, we're all in favour of social mobility, but it doesn't really help the people who are left behind at the bottom um, and who aren't mobile. Um, so there was there was a, a sense in which there was a whole class of people who were abandoned by this kind of political vision. Uh, many it, it, it arose out of uh, um, the philosopher Herbert Spencer. He's not much heard of now, but he was the most famous person uh, in philosophy in Victorian times and um he applied darwin's theory of evolution to human society in fact it was spencer not darwin who, who invented the phrase survival of the fittest and uh, a lot of these really rich uh, uh uh robber barons they were called because people like andrew carnegie um although we remember him as as, as a man who did a lot of good uh, in his own time he was a, an ambivalent figure because uh, he he made his money through pretty ruthless deals and some very questionable practices um, and, and exploiting his workers, cutting their wages constantly, even having you know, strikes, sending private armies in to bust one strike, which killed some of the strikers. So he was, you know, he was a philanthropist, but he was also this ruthless capitalist. And so Carnegie thought that uh, this, this social Darwinism of Herbert Spencer meant that people like him the rich, the bosses, they were innately superior human beings to the poor. And so it was better that they should make all the decisions about how everything uh, should be done. So this kind of top-down model of philanthropy, which which uh, which Carnegie instituted uh, and shifted it away from like soup kitchens and giving to the poor and putting it into um, cultural infrastructure. He built 3,000 libraries all around the world, parks, art galleries, museums, concert halls. And... Um, so the, the the model of philanthropy is is less about what it was in that original Jewish vision, or as it was uh, um, established in 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 the idea of uh, uh, Christian charity through the Middle Ages. Uh, yes, uh, uh, Carnegie is the poster boy for what you mentioned earlier: people who laundered their reputation uh, through philanthropy. Absolutely. <clears throat> But um, I mean, that the, said, he did he did a lot of good as well. So it's part sure. of that ambivalence about philanthropy. Uh, the the character Tevye in the uh, play and the movie Fiddler on the Roof has a wonderful line that says, "It's no shame to be poor, but it's no great honor either." Uh, when and how did the shame faced poor emerge in the philanthropic mind? Uh, there have always been distinctions made between different groups of the poor. I mean, in, if you look into the Hebrew Bible, you see, you know, the the uh, the focus on the widow, uh, the 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 orphan, um, the stranger. Um, that, that 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 is right from the outset. There's a selection on you know certain kinds of poor as being the people who most deserved help. If you look at the Christian fathers, the church fathers, uh, like in the third, fourth centuries onwards, they uh, they were concerned about, you know, if you've only got a certain amount of money, how do you prioritize who you give it to? And they came up with different solutions. I mean, the 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 uh, the classic the, uh, the classical fathers, the uh, uh, the Romans, um, the Stoics, they came up with lots of ideas about um, uh, a kind of concentric circle around you. So you had a duty to first of all to your father, and then to your children, and then to uh, your fa extended family and then to your neighbours and then to your nation and out, out to the world like that, that you've got other ideas. No, you should prioritise uh, those who are the genuine poorest. And and in doing this, what uh, what emerged first in a kind of um, straightforward idea of, of trying to prioritise, but later with a kind of moral tinge over it of disapproving of certain groups of people, you'd get... Um, in uh, in Elizabethan times in England, for instance, there was a, a man called um, Thomas Harmon who uh, is mentioned in my book, uh, and he came up with a, a book in which he classified 24 different categories of poor, destitute, and beggars. 
and fraudsters and and people to people to of of whom you should be suspicious so you you get this idea that there's a kind of deserving poor and an undeserving poor and some of those distinctions over which is deserving and which is not are more colored by the political and economic prejudices of those in power than than they are by what you might call any objective standards and uh, does the concept that uh, Michael Sandel mentioned in our interview and in his book of luck egalitarianism come into play? In other words, the worthy poor are those who couldn't help it. The uh, widows, for example, uh, or the elderly or disabled people, um, or the working poor who generally just get by, but uh, when something happens, a turn down in trade or in the market or in their own health and family, they fall below sustenance level, as opposed to other kinds of poor people uh, who maybe have uh, addictions that are preventing them from earning a living. Is, is that the kind of worthy and unworthiness that you're talking about? Yeah, well, you've indicated there some some different categories, but there are many more different categories. And um, uh, what I think what we've, I mean, in 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 historical terms, people would talk about the idle, um, you know, the the drunken and the indolent. Uh, The idea was these were people who could work but wouldn't work. Found it more lucrative to go around being a beggar or even a a con man and a fraudster. Um, And so you needed. uh, throughout most of those poor laws in, in English history, you see that it was a two-handed approach, cracking down on the villains and, and helping the really poor. Um, the problem with this is that uh, it's very diffic- difficult sometimes to distinguish um, who should be in what category. And if, if somebody is, um, is, is, is an addict, you have uh, sympathy for them because they're in the grip of an addiction but you also feel, well, they should never have got into that situation in the first place, so it's their own fault. Uh, and so where do, you, where do you draw the line between these two impulses? And I think the answer is you draw the line in different places according to different individual circumstances. So it becomes a lot more complicated. And one of the problems with the, the kind of attitudes of the poor historically that you, you were referring to is that there isn't really this kind of complexity. It's very binary. It's black and white. You know, they're either good or bad. They're either deserving or they're undeserving. But um, you know, it's it, it, it's possible that 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 can, both of those can be true, and that the solution uh, is not either to give them money or to lock them up, uh, but something in between. And it might be to do with changing the social circumstances which shape the problems that they that that that, that they are trapped in. Um, so there's a, a variety of responses, and um, it, it's been too common for uh, people in the history of philanthropy to just see it as black and white. And, and uh, of course, we've been talking about philanthropy in the West, in Europe and in America. Uh, is there a dramatic difference in the approach to philanthropy in non-Western countries? Yeah, I, I don't deal with this in great detail in the book because the book yes. the book is big enough just dealing with Western philanthropy. I started off trying to write a book about English philanthropy and realised you couldn't do that. You had to go back to the Greeks and uh, the the Jews uh, uh, in ancient times, and you had to go forward to uh, a world which is globalised and, and interconnected in a way which impo- it's impossible to. Um, to single out English philanthropy, but even then you're dealing with Western philanthropy. Uh, I've got some references to what happens in in, in um, primitive societies, uh, also in China uh, and in India. Um, but the, the, those, you know, you'd have to write a whole new um, other book about those, and it would take another six years, which is what it took to write this one. But I mean, I, it's interesting when you see. Uh, a clash between these different approaches. So you get someone like Bill Gates, um, Warren Buffett, they came up with this idea of the giving pledge, that everybody who was a billionaire should be persuaded to sign this pledge, which would mean that they would give away at least half of their money um, during their life or before they died or, or as part of their will. Um, and uh, he moved around the Western world 
uh, signing people up to this. But when he got to India and to China, he found that there were cultural barriers to it. And the idea of that the, there were different ideas about who who you should give to first, what, what, in what ways you gave, what was the priority of giving, the hierarchy of giving. And uh, the first time he went to India uh, to uh, to promote this idea, he found that all the big billionaires said, oh, no, we're busy, we're uh, watching watching a cricket match or something, we can't come to that. And he had to work hard with, with a sympathetic Indian billionaire to, um, to try and uh, inject the idea of philanthropy into... Um, into the the, the the existing Indian wor- worldview of charity, uh, and you do see clashes and contradictions and tensions. Um, not so much contradictions, but tensions. Who who do you give to? And you look at modern China. You know, a lot of the philanthropy of modern Chinese businessmen is actually controlled or endorsed by the Communist Party, and so it's got a political dimension too. You know, we give to this, but we don't give to that. Well, why? Who decides? And who who influences? Well, that brings us back to the state issue and the powerful role of the state. Uh, Besides the tax laws that we talked about earlier, nowadays in England and Europe and other places, the state has taken on most of the responsibility for caring for the poor, for the elderly, and for the disabled. How did that change the focus of philanthropy? Or did it? Well, it did, definitely. I mean, I charted in the book uh, the tensions in Victorian philanthropy between those who saw the poor as to blame for their own poverty and in need of moral reform, and those who saw them just as people who needed the, the symptoms um, of, 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 the, of the worst aspects of their lives alleviating. There was that kind of tension. Um, but what was happening, um, and this is focused very much in, in England during the Industrial Revolution, which kind of changed the world in lots of ways, um, you found that with the growth of those big industrial cities, um, that, that poverty was on a different scale and of a different nature than it had been. Uh, you know, medieval times, you'd have a, a poor person in the village, you'd know, all know about him. You would look after him in the way that, you know, um, in the 1950s, I went to rural Ireland and there would be like, you know, somebody who had a mental health problem would be just looked after by the rest of the community and they would buy him drinks in the in the pub and they would uh, indulge him when he was being, you know, antisocial. Um, when you get into a big industrial city, the, all that kind of human community tolerance goes and you just start to see problems on a huge scale. And of course, the the scale did increase because of because of industrialization, and, and there kept there came to be a kind of realization amongst philanthropists of different different kind of uh, dispensations that they could never solve this problem. It was too big, and it needed to, to it needed to hand over to, uh, to to the state. And you see the start of that the formation of the welfare state in the in the nineteen twenties in England with the, the liberal uh, government. Lloyd George uh, and 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 so on, and they they introduced uh, uh, a whole range of uh, uh, payments for uh, people in difficulties, old age pensions, child benefit pensions, all that kind of thing, and um, and that went through in Britain up to the Second World War when you got the foundation of the welfare state after with the Attlee government after World War Two, um, and you saw in that. Uh, uh, an interesting interchange between uh, the state uh, paying for things, taking over things, and and starting to have views on things which which were uh, quite kind of uh, dictatorial, um, and and the volunteers who'd run the hospitals and so forth throughout, and there was this kind of interweaving between between volunteers and and, and state um, uh, operators who. Um, in that period, the state came more and more to control uh, these things. Um, but at the end of the 20th century, it began to be seen that you know, there were deficits in what the state could do. Uh, and people like Margaret Thatcher started to try and use charities to do some of the work of the state. And that had good and bad effects on, on charities because it meant the, the government started to control charities too. But 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 there, there, there emerged this, this sense that the state... Uh, couldn't do everything, and and also it had blind spots. It wouldn't do certain things, and so that's where the the third sector, the third leg in society, needs to kind of be bolstered. 
because it has an alternative view to the government and it has an alternative uh, uh, strategy and tech t- and, and tactics than the market does. And so you, you, you then began to see a shift away from the idea that the state could do everything into a more uh, tripartite uh, view of the world, which, which is what you've got today. And um, so, I mean, one of the great examples that one philanthropist said to me was, you know, even if you have the best health, health uh, uh, care system in the world, who's going to pay for the clowns to go into the children's ward? And there's a, there's a very good line from uh, Pope Benedict on this. He said, even in the most just society, there will still be loneliness. And loneliness can only be cured by love and charity, not, not by the state and uh, political uh, strategies. So there's been an increasing realisation that the state has a role to play in all of this, but it, it's not sufficient. And the state, of course, has made enormous mistakes in trying to intervene in issues of poverty and uh, social justice. It's not just the uh, big donors <coughs> like the Bill Gates who tried a project and then stopped it without consultation. The state actually has done it as well. We can look at housing issues. We can look at educational issues. So um, errors on a large scale are in both parts of the society. Yeah, errors uh, are endemic to the human condition. Everybody yes. will always make errors all the time. And so what you need in a society are, are mechanisms which can, which can swing the pendulum or which can correct those, those, those errors. And when, 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 if, the, if the state is, is uh, inadequate in its provisions or overgenerous in its provisions or creates uh, uh, dependency, uh, you, you're bound to get these different... Uh, political views which will say what we need is to be tougher on the poor or what we need is to be more generous to the poor and and the, the, the poverty is a complex phenomenon and there are elements uh, uh, where it's it, it, people uh, you know you you cannot just hand everything over to people you've got to nurture a sense of of, of self-respect and 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 uh, responsibility personal responsibility in them and striking the balance between those two that's 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 the task of uh, of politics and philanthropy and and what should the philanthro capitalists do what should those mega donors do the fact that they want to make a difference and uh, have big visions and deep pockets are terrific how can they do it better? Well, the, the philanthropic capitalist approach is is very much distinguished by the idea that you can bring business methods into philanthropy. So they, you know, they 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 bring this the approach that's made them billions in high tech industries in California or wherever to philanthropy, and that has got both a good and a bad side. They bring this idea of strategic. Uh, thinking, setting clear goals, developing sound evidence-based strategies, uh, using innovative business techniques, measuring progress along the way, correcting course if you're if you're uh, not achieving the right uh, uh, impact. It's all very data-driven. It's metrics obsessed, and you get someone like Bill Gates who's also in love with technology, and you get you get in, in, in that kind of view. Um, the idea that the, the 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 rich person can look down on the problem and say, "I know what the problem is. I'll sort this out." The downside with that is is illustrated by Bill's wife Melinda, who has taught Bill over the years that um, having the most fantastic uh, solution um, is no good if people won't adopt it. You have to talk to people. You have to find out what people want. You have to find out what the barriers are to why they don't want to use this vaccine or why they can't get their uh, sex workers can't get their clients to use condoms. You can't just tell them to do it. You've got to find out why they don't do it. And uh, and in the case in India, when Bill wanted to um, uh, use a large-scale distribution of condoms to solve the problem of AIDS, which is at that point confined pretty much the sex workers and the trucker population, um, Melinda went to talk to the sex workers and found that the, all the ideas that Bill had wouldn't work because uh, there, were, uh, there was a problem of violence between the, the the 
the men and and the prostitutes, which had to be addressed first. You can't ask somebody to uh, uh, insist on someone using a condom if they're they're, they're threatening to beat you up uh, anyway. So uh, what what the financial capitalists have to learn is that they've got to listen to the people on uh, um, on the ground who understand what the problems are, and uh, instead of looking at um, something and say, ah, that's that's a problem. I have a solution. They need to think, no, these are people who need, I, who I want to help. How do I do that? Well, by listening to them first. So the whole idea of, of listening, of entering into a partnership with, with people, treating them with, with respect, building mutual respect. And it's a two way, it's a two way process. Um, they, both sides listen. Um, when philanthropists do that, they they move into this uh, what I call reciprocal philanthropy rather than the philanthropic capitalist model of strategic philanthropy, and and what I say you, you're doing there is that you're restoring the balance between the Jewish and the Greek models of philanthropy. The idea that you're balancing the the uh, the clear vision of the strategic with the empathy of 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 this, this more human approach. It's like you know balancing head and heart, and so. Um, that's that's why the book starts with, and, and and dwells with 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 the, these philosophical areas, the Greek and the, and the and the Jewish, because that has been lost in modern philanthropy, and some sense of balance between those two is what modern philanthropy needs. You spent six years researching and writing this book, and it is a magnum opus. It's really uh, an experience to read. I can't imagine what it was like to write, and it's very readable as well. How did it change you? How, what happened to you during those six years as you uh, made your way through the history and world of philanthropy? Well, I, um, my, my, the, great, the great formative experience of my life was going to cover the Ethiopian famine in 1985 when I was a young journalist. And uh, I mean, you, your eyes are open just by the baseline on which people live in 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 those uh, African societies. So when you get famine on top of it, you know it's a shocking and horrifying um, uh, realization. And I came to see as I as I moved from Ethiopia to Sudan and uh, uh, Chad and Niger and Mali, right across the Sahara, the sub-Saharan region that the same problems were there everywhere. So it wasn't just a question of there being a drought and that had caused the famine. Uh, the People were trapped in uh, systems of trading with, with rich countries which on terms which were biased in favour of the rich. Um, they'd been saddled with large debts by uh, uh, the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, uh, and those organisations have said the way to repay these debts is to implement policies which, in, in practice, harm the poor, so I, I, I suddenly realized this wasn't about um, j- just sending them money to try and feed them for, for the day. It was about justice. It was a, a back to that, that Jewish notion of, of, the, of justice and charity being, being part of the same thing. And, and justice was what, was what was needed to change things. And I worked like for three decades with Bob Geldof and Bono and others on campaigning um, to, to, to get some of these social justice issues uh, into onto the agenda of, um, of of governments, and we succeeded in that to a, 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 a certain extent uh, with the Glen Eagles G8, G8 summit, G, G7 summit. No, it was G8, G8 summit. Um, and so, when I started to realise that philanthropy um, was a big thing, it was growing. You know, over the past two decades, three quarters of the world's philanthropy foundations have been founded in just those twenty years. And the Gates Foundation has a bigger budget now than seventy percent of the world's nations. Extraordinary! Uh, it's ex- it's absolutely extraordinary. And at the beginning of the twenty first century, the flow of cash from philanthropists to the developing world was tiny; didn't even warrant a separate entry in the statistics for the uh, the OECD. By two thousand and eleven, it had made its way onto the OECD figures as a separate item, and by two thousand eighteen. The OECD was declaring that philanthropy was reshaping the development landscape like never before. And I discovered that these people controlled between them more than $1.5 trillion. And so it occurred to me that the whole of my story, my life uh, journey on this, had been 
about understanding the shift from charity to justice. And now here we were slipping back from justice to charity. And I thought, this doesn't sound, this doesn't sound right. And so I started um, with a, a more critical view of philanthropy, uh, thinking, you know, how can this phenomenon be growing when it, when it, it runs against the grain of history? And, uh, and the, the six years in which I researched it, I came to a much more sophisticated view in which I realized that philanthropy had a huge advantage and a really good side as well as a downside. And so I decided what was needed was not to write a kind of political book which said, um, you know, why philanthropy is bad, why justice is good, uh, but to write something which says, you know, philanthropy is here, it can be good, and how do we make it better? So the book is really trying to learn the lessons of, of 2,000 years of where philanthropy has been good and where it has had failings and, and how we can strengthen it today. Well, finally, Paul, you've said where you'd like to see philanthropy going. What do you see? What do you foresee the future of philanthropy being? Well, it could be one of two things. It could just... After the pandemic, it could, it could go back to business as usual and we could have philanthropy playing its part as the kind of social cement of the uh, of the vision of the rich. And that's all bound up with globalization, growing, sorry, growing inequality in various countries around the world. Or we could see some of the stuff that we've um, been, been honored to see during the pandemic of people helping one another mutual aid groups being formed or you know in in all over europe all over all over the world there have been groups of people setting out to try and assist the, the weak in their society the vulnerable to just collecting medicines and delivering them collecting food um th there's been a, a a rise of kind of a, a sense of 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 mutual um, solidarity that we're all, we're all bound together as the Africans say Ubuntu I am me because you are you that, that, that there's a growth of that and uh, my hope would be that that will will be will what will what will triumph and I think if uh, if philanthropists read this book they will see the advantages of using the heart as well as the head of this reciprocal philanthropy this mutual respect this partnership and um, that philanthropy can, can play a real part in, 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 as the phrase has, building back better after the pandemic. I agree, and I very much hope so as well. Uh, Paul, I've enjoyed our conversation, and I really learned a great deal from your book. Thank you for your time and for your extraordinary work. And it's been really interesting. Thank you. And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov. Bye-bye.